themselves as agents of social change, as holding within their collective hands the power to create a new world. Welcome back to another season of On the Tier. My name is Daniela. I use she, her pronouns. I am a Berkeley graduate from the School of Social Welfare, co-director of the Berkeley Underground Scholars, and your host. I am very excited to have two very special people with us today, Dr. Erica Miners and Berkeley's very own David Maldonado. Dr. Erica Miners and David co-wrote Due Time, Meditations on Abolition at the Site of the University. Our topic of conversation today will focus on their article and further discuss abolition, particularly at institutions of higher education. It is so great to have you here. Before we get into it, can I have you both tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves? I'm David Maldonado. I am a sixth year uh, student in the Graduate School of Education, broadly, you know, looking at uh, carceral studies stuff and critical university stuff. I always like to say, you know, first, I'm a father. I'm now a grandfather and a son. Right. And sort of foreground those relations. Right. Because, uh, you know, institutional relationships are one thing, but I think it's important to I'm a comrade first and foremost. You know what I mean? And a a person with a family um, invested in community. So, yeah, I'm glad to be here. I'm also really glad to be here. I'm Erica Miners. Um, I use she, her, they pronouns. I really appreciate, David, your, um, I've been bringing back Comrade in the last couple of years as well. Um, and I, um, I really work hard to try to identify myself outside of institutional relationships um, as well. Um, I have a day job at a public open access university here in Chicago, but I'm you know, also um, a sister. Um, I'm an auntie or an unkty. I learned that word the other day, unkty. <laughs> uh, um, I'm a worker, um, I'm an organizer, and I'm a writer, and I am um, yeah, privileged to be learning and working in community with um, great folks like David and also the um, learning with the underground scholars as well. So that's me. Thank you. Thank you both. All right, let's get right into it. My first question for you all is, what is abolition? How would you describe it to someone who is unfamiliar with the term? Yeah, I mean, this is a great question, right? Like, what is abolition? You know, um, I mean, I think it owes its genealogy to prior abolition projects, right? Starting, of course, with the abolition of chattel slavery in this country, right? But I think in the contemporary context, if we're talking about the abolition, you know, abolishing policing and prisons and forms of surveillance and unfreedom, I would start there, right? It, it, it's, but it, it, and this is an important point, right? It is it's as much a negation or a tearing down of those things as it is a world building project, right? Building the world that we want that has. And here's where I sort of use stuff that I've learned from Erica, right? It's about building, you know, pathways to sustainable lives for people, right? You know, I'm a huge I'm a huge fan of, of, of Frederick Moten, you know, Fred Moten and Stefano Harney. 
what they're arguing, right, is, is it's as much um, a tearing down as is a world building project using Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Right. And, and I, I love right after that. And I cite this in the article. They say there's also and they're citing Spivak, an uncanny resemblance to communism. Right. And so, you know, I, I, I study Marx quite a bit. I'm, I'm never going to apologize for it. Like, is Marx a perfect the, theoretical framing? No. But I think unequivocally, he gives us the laws of capital, right, which is a desire to, to take our life and labor, right, and our time. But I think abolition in some way does bear an uncanny resemblance to communism, right, or anarchism or some type of there has to be a redistribution of the material world that we live in, right, and different relationships among people within that, right? And this is not to do violence to, to say that, like, is that is that a class reductive argument? No. Right. It, it doesn't. I think abolition is foregrounded in, in things thought through by, you know, queer theory and black feminism in particular. Right. And it owes part of its genealogy to that. And so it pays attention to uh, systems that arose in conditions of extreme dispossession and hierarchy. Right. And so it understands that we need different relationships and we need a, a material project of redistribution. Um, but it's, it's getting it's getting down together differently. Right. While we're simultaneously finding ways to get rid of these systems that do not work. Right. And it's it's a new imagination. Right. So many times I think and I'm getting long winded here, but. I think we're given an either or, right? Do you call the cops or do you not? Why is that the only choice you're giving me, right? Like, can we imagine something else? You know, I, I think I think what we're thinking about, right, is is a thousand experiments, right? Like, why aren't we willing to try a thousand different experiments, many of which may fail, rather than the same ones that we know don't work? Um, kind of a long answer, but yeah, that, that's 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 where I start, you know. What can I add to that brilliance? What what can I add? Um, maybe I'll just underscore a few tiny things that David offered. You know, abolition as a politics and a practice, as the work, as a framework, a political framework, but also the doing and making. Right, and it's you know about the work, the everyday work to build the world that we know that we need. That is going to allow all of us to flourish. Right, and we know that our current regime of you know, the world's largest imprisoned population, you know, policing uh, borders is not the pathway towards flourishing, is not the pathway towards safe and strong communities. So abolition, you know, is this, you know, work, insistent work every day to, to, to build the world that we know that we need, which means dismantling institutions, but also building up practices, ways of being, uh, systems of relating to one another, new languages, new, new ideas that are built you know, real forms of, of, of safety. And I, I also really appreciated that David started um, his definition off with this sort of genealogy. I mean, the use of the word abolition is not accidental, right? Um, you know, thinking about the long uh, relationship between our current, you know, prison industrial complex, right? Um, to use a three cent word to the system of chattel slavery in the United States. And if we want to, if we want to truly, you know, abolish, you know, uh, whites, supremacy, capitalism, heteropatriarchy, to use um, more fabulous 10 cent words, you know, where, um, you know, we have to acknowledge those, those sort of deep roots in our contemporary prison industrial complex. So the work of abolition is challenging and dismantling those, those systems as well. I love that. 
why do you think, and this is like a question that I think everybody's having and, and, and kind of pondering, but, <laughs> and addressing, but why do you think people get uncomfortable with the term abolition, especially right now? That question, which is a great question, makes me sort of think of two contradictory responses. The first one is both that we're kind of at an interesting moment where more people are using that term abolition, you know, in part because of the, you know, the thousand, you know, experiments and the uh, prior um, organizing that David referenced, right? That, you know, we've had organizations like Critical Resistance, you know, groups like um, Underground Scholars, you know, people that have been doing the heavy lifting, the hard work to really, um, you know, challenge and redefine safety outside side of a context of policing and punishment. So more people in this moment, particularly after the George, but the uprising connected to the murder of George Floyd have been using that term abolition. So it's kind of like, it's interesting. I'll be on zoom calls with young organizers. It's sort of like, you know, people are using it as an identity, which is both kind of a, a recognition of the win of the organizing, but also, you know, we want to have some rigor and some intention and some meaning attached to that word. So, but coming back to my point, so contradictory in this moment, more people are using the term. And I think still, I don't think you're wrong. Um, I, I think there's still sort of a, you know, a kind of an anxiety, you know, which, you know, in, in mainstream spaces around either the demand to defund or abolition. And I think it's both, um, you know, both the both real and not real is that for people to, to the, 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 the demand to, to defund um, police, um, and reinvest those resources in things that materially make our community stronger and safer, you know, is, um, you know, people want to be, want to be safe. Right. And, you know, people, even people who are deeply have been deeply harmed by police, you know, if you go to a community meeting and you ask like, you know, how can we make this community stronger and safer? Often people's first response is we need more surveillance cameras. We need more cops on the corners. So I think our imaginations have often been so um, kind of constrained to think about safety through bigger borders, bigger armies, you know, more surveillance cameras. So I think abolition is often really, you know, threatening because it's really pushing people to reimagine safety, to to think, you know, to think in, in different ways about how we can relate to one another. And that's like a muscle, you know, that needs to be exercised, that needs to that needs to have possibility. So um, and I, I also don't think it's a bad you know, thing um, um, that, that words make people uncomfortable because I think words are important. You know, I mean, using the term white supremacy, you know, using the, 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 the word um, prison industrial complex, you know, language you know, has the ability to have us pay attention to systems of power relations and it invokes histories. And I think that's really important. So I think we're at a kind of a complex moment right now where people are both more people are calling themselves abolitionists on the left. And yet there's also anxiety about that term, about the demand to defund. And I don't think that that's a, you know, I think that's a, you know, a, a good, a productive tension, a productive place to be in. It means that we, you know, you know, I think David and I have talked about this. It means that now is, as always, is the moment to sort of study and to, to dive in. What do we mean by abolition? What histories is it connected to? Why does it make people uncomfortable? What's the demand that it imposes upon people? And why is that important? That's a great question. And I, I, I think I just wanted to um, offer some frame on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I want to echo everything that my comrade just offered, right? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe if I take some of the sensational part of like, why does it make certain people uncomfortable, right? I think there's a lot of ideological work around like who we're supposed to fear, quote unquote, we, right? And dangerousness, right? And so like the, you know, 
detractors, of course, are like, you're going to inhabit this world, right? Um, actually, we're, we're, we've been doing the existing work of abolition that deals directly with community violence. To say that we, that we don't care about what you call, quote unquote, violence, right, um, is, first of all, completely misguided. But then I think to, to point to the scholarship, right, which I, I'd love to nerd out, uh, I, I go back to like early work from Stuart Hall and others, right, around like the production of a racialized folk devil to authorize the state to build carcerality out, right? So, you know, his, to again, the 10 cent words, but during a conjunctural crisis of legitimacy, the state responds with a racialized folk devil to convince people, right, to build a coercive uh, arm of the state, right? They get people to, in, in sort of Gramscian terms, right? Um, to be complicit with coercion, um, right, with, with force, with with the building a police and prison state, um, and it changes. And I think this is the this is the thing about racial capitalism, right? Is another another term to throw out. Um, is that it's very region and temporal specific and it can change. And we've seen it change, right? We've seen the state mobilize resources around seizing a racialized folk devil in the form of a welfare queen. And when I say that, undoubtedly an image comes up of who, of, of who they who they produced, right? Um, but but it can change, right? It, it could be Willie Horton and that's gonna, that's gonna age me, right? But like certainly people have, have covered that, right? It could be MS-13, right? And so it changes. Right. And it's dynamic. Right. It's the quote unquote terrorist. It's the quote unquote. Right. Undocumented. that They'll call illegal. Right. And so like um, it's very sophisticated. Right. But I think this is the ideological work that goes into people that are like, oh, my God, you want a world that's full of that. Right. Instead of unpacking, like, what are the systems and ideological work it takes for the state and 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 right and 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 capital to build these kinds of projects that can convince the public to put money and resources, public resources overwhelmingly, into a carceral state based on these ideological tropes, right? And so, um, we got to do work to unpack that, right? I love that. Yeah, that definitely speaks to a lot of like the concerns that even formerly incarcerated people have, right? Like we've had people from underground scholars or different people who are like, I'm not an abolitionist, you know, without really knowing what that, I mean, do we, none of us really fully know what that looks like. Right. But it's, it's just like having, not having like a full understanding, like what are the possibilities? It's just like, well, what are we going to do when the prisons close? Right. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. How is the university intertwined with the prison industrial complex? <laughs> I mean, I want to start by by admitting some of my own faults, right? Which is like I've used capital the university and and Erica in particular has been like the place I'm at is miles away from other other places, right? And so I do believe there's a specificity to the university that is UC Berkeley, the UC system R ones, right? And sort of so I want to kind of start there. But I think here here's part of the thing for me, right? Is like uh, I'll speak in my in my experience, right? When I got here uh, to UC Berkeley as an undergrad in 2011, right? Um, you know, I, all I saw was sort of what the university promotes, especially to the dispossessed and formerly incarcerated, right? Was just unbelievable possibility, right? And um, social mobility, right? Um, and what I didn't see is that this place is an employer, a developer, a gentrifier. Right. And so like 
it's it's commitments to the political economy. And I think Berkeley's a really good test case for this. Right. Like it overwhelmingly has policed the surrounding area. Right. Like I could say a lot more. It started a class war on the hippies. Right. Like I wasn't even aware of this, but like looking back through that history, like growing up in West Berkeley, like there used to be actual hippies here. Right. And and so they took obscure federal laws for 50 percent, 50 cent street drugs like acid and sent them all to Lompoc and Terminal Island. Right. And so, like, if they're going to do that, like, what you know, I mean, believe me, they're pulling out all the stops. Right. And so, like, and I'll give you another example. Right. It's like how things are quantified into law. Right. And sort of like so the university overwhelmingly signals to people, wealthy people that send their kids here to be in fraternities that they can come here and have rivalries and fight with each other and take and sell and do drugs. Right. And as an abolitionist, I don't want to level down. I don't want them to get criminalized. Do you know what I'm saying? But I've seen how they've criminalized and dispossessed the surrounding area, right. Of, of working class, poor black and brown people who are not allowed to do that at all. Right. And so like the university is deeply invested in sort of like making sure that (laughs) it, it signals to, certain people that they can send their kids here to do right the kinds of things that hey people do crazy shit especially kids right but for us it meant going to prison right and so like that's part of it and the other part is it's development right like when you invite a whole bunch of wealthy high tuition paying students you start to gentrify the local area and then part of what i wrote about is the service workers right because when i was growing up a lot of people i knew their their family and and kinfolk and a lot of people worked at the university and was a you know the whole political economy was different than granted right i'm talking about this late seventies and early eighties, but it was a sustainable income. Right. And so like the fact that it's no longer, you can no longer live in the area because the rents are so high. Right. And the university is implicated in that. Right. It is starting to gentrify your kids to prison. Right. Or, or getting them off the area. Basically like my whole neighborhood's gone pretty much. Um, it's reduced to like one apartment building, you know, um, and then simultaneously outsourcing those jobs that used to be union and used to be good. And this is why we're seeing, you know, I've seen four labor stoppages from service workers since I've been here. Right. I've seen the graduate students go on wildcat strike. Right. I've seen uh, librarians and adjunct workers. So like labor stoppages, right. Like labor. And it's again, it's impact as an employer, and the practices, which we may not see as carceral, are creating a carcerality, I would argue. Right. And so, like, I kind of want to look at the, you know, at the more nuanced uh, ways that the university is implicated in, in like shaking the spot. Right. And getting rid of people um, and creating the conditions for carcerality as one way of thinking. Right. I love that. And it's super you know, I what I what I love thinking through with you, um, David, in that article um, was just the sort of varied tentacles of how sort of the university naturalizes, uh, reimagines, reforms, uh, makes the prison industrial complex. Um, and I think just some of the examples that you've just offered, you know, about gentrification, about being an exploitative employer, about um, um, like land grabs and real estate development. I think that those are all really key. I'll just add a couple that I think are really um, that we talk about in the article that I've been paying attention to a, a lot um, is this sort of, you know, the project of the 
of the modern university is really to naturalize meritocracy as well, right? Like that there's a best of and a worst of, right? Um, and I think the university does that, you know, um, you know, in very sort of in, through neutral neutral frameworks. And I think that we, you know, we don't interrogate that enough. I mean, the, you know, I think central. I think also, you know, looking at the content of the of, of the curriculum, we talk about this in the article as well. I mean, entire fields like criminology, for example, or even the project of, 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 of you know, we might, you know, all of us might agree, for example, or, or, or the average student might look at the field of criminology and say, yeah, I can see how that sort of like has co-created, you know, the U.S. prison industrial complex because of, you know, how it, you know, how it naturalizes, you know, policing, how the questions that get asked, those that don't get asked, that whole disciplinary field is, you know, which mints, you know, scholars is, is deeply embedded in the reproduction of um, the U.S. prison industrial complex, the global prison industrial complex. But I think I think also other fields like, you know, like like social work, you know, um, you know, which, you know, has, you know, has its histories, you know, in in white supremacy and policing and coercion and, you know, maintaining, you know, unequal landscapes of racial capitalism as well. Right. So I think, I think you know, we're we're looking in this article and, you know, we're not the only ones. Many people are kind of posing these questions right now, you know, um, you know, both questions and how the, the sort of the, the physical material arrangement of a prison? Why does this private wealth hoarding university in Chicago that has an enormous endowment, why aren't we talking about endowments as, as twice stolen wealth? <laughs> uh, you know, University of Chicago has, a you know, the largest private police force, right, you know, on the on the planet. So there are those kind of material structures that, that we're getting um, some traction right now around, you know, cops off campus campaigns and people are paying attention to those. And I think that's crucial and important. But we're also, you know, um, um, pushing and many other people as well for kind of interrogating the, pro the, the intellectual, you know, the, the, the project of the university, the disciplinary arrangement, what counts as knowledge, whose knowledge is validated and how that how that is also part and parcel of the prison industrial complex from disciplines like criminology to practices like social work, you know, to, you know, we haven't even touched on sort of the military, you know, industrial complex, you know, whether it's, you know, minting, you know, and creating new weapons of mass destruction to um, the, uh, you know, to, 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 the, to the other ways in which uh, universities are complicit in the military industrial complex. So I think that those are, um, those are, I think it's important, important to also flag that those are also resisted, you know, have, have been consistently resisted by, by students, by workers, you know, by community members, by, um, you know, uh, sometimes even scholars within those fields who've done the hard work to sort of expose the, the ways in which the university, I think, is sort of complicit in the reproduction of the prison industrial complex. I just one additional thing that um, I think is important to flag is that in this moment, the university as, you know, tries to position itself as, as a response to, you know, mass, what gets called mass incarceration in the United States. Like we're going to be the fix. The community college is going to be the fix or the university is going to be the fix. And I do believe that there are potentially, you know, things like community colleges, which can be a form of resistance, you know, to the prison industrial complex. But 
not if we don't recognize how the institution of the university, which is not monolithic, as as David um, flagged when um, he started, has been complicit in the reproduction of it, right? So we can't, you know, can't, we're not going to move to like how, how we're so great and we're fixing the problem, you know, unless we also acknowledge how, you know, historically and still today, we are complicit in the reproduction of the problem. <laughs> so um, uh, I think important tension there. Yeah, that's important. Well, one example as far as being complicit is that I can say is, um, you know, where I was incarcerated at Valley State Prison, there was an optical um, PI optical prison industrial authority optical job, right, where where incarcerated people were making lenses and glasses. And that's those glasses are here in the optical department. UC Berkeley. And so it's just really strange. I mean, outside of that, you, we're talking about the desks that are made inside of prisons. That's what's used here at UC Berkeley, right? But just even like the optical that that's made, uh, lenses and, and frames are made in the prison and that's what they're using here in the optical department. And, and students, you know, will go through the university, um, you know, medical insurance and purchase their lenses or the glasses and you know, there's a stamp on there that says where it's coming from. So it's like they're totally complicit in so many ways. What does abolition at the university look like? And do you think it is possible? Ah, I love this. These, these are the, the, the tough questions, right? <laughs> um, I mean, these are the ones that, that force me to sort of look at the contradiction of my own, the, own, the position I embody, right? Because on one level, um, you know, the fact that I'm here, that I'm a PhD student um, can signal, right, that all you got to do is work hard and you can make it right. Like all we need is access. Right. But that does uh, that does a, a, a violence right to everyone who, for a whole host of reasons, have been targeted by this system the same way I was, but didn't land right here. Right. And so we talk about this, too. I really love the framing by. Lisa Marie Cacho, I, I think Ruth Wilson Gilmore and Jackie Wang would call it relative innocence, but I think I think Lisa Marie Cacho deserves more, more of her due um, for the, the concept of the violence of value, right? And I'll, 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 I'll use all the terms. So the state or institutions, right, recruit the devalued other, so that would be me, right, to recuperate value by devaluing an already devalued other, other, right? So in other words, in order to recuperate value, I have to be like, look at me. I'm Uh, the good one who chose to come to the university. And uh, and in doing that, I'm doing a violence to everybody who didn't choose to come here, right? And it starts to to reproduce sort of the neoliberal fantasy that all you need is to be personally responsible. And if you're not, then it's your fault, right? Because you should have taken advantage of this too, right? But but like take advantage of this is, is the wrong framing. Right. Like there's a whole host of reasons why I didn't get here right from high school. Right. It's like it does away with all the violence of schooling, of policing, of targeted criminalization. I really like targeted criminalization. Again, this is me sort of riffing off Erica's earlier work um, because because right. We wouldn't say right that education reduces targeted criminalization. I'm still going to be targeted for criminalization, even if I'm educated. Right. 
So this, this is why I trouble that. I have a real problem with the education reduces recidivism stuff. Right. Yeah. 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 I have a real problem with that. And like uh, Erica and I meditated on that line for a while and like it's reductive to say, but you know what reduces recidivism abolition, brother. You know what I'm saying? It's like, so like just love that line still. Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's like, yeah. So I'll sort of. I love that. I love that. Just because I just feel like we've had so many people who have gotten their education and now they're acting all funny with, you know, everybody. And, and it, it's part of what can happen here. Right. It's part of what it's meant to do. It's like, I'm, I'm better. It's like the whole elitism and uh, I hope that never happens to to me, but you know, it's definitely, definitely familiar. Um, thanks. Oh yeah. And I, I think, you know, to, to, to sort of respond to, right. It, it doesn't mean that I'm going to stop fighting to get more formerly incarcerated people into the university. Right. Like th- this is at the level of deep contradiction that, that like in some ways is not, there's no easy resolution, right. It's like, it's a both and right. We want to fight for abolition and keep getting our people in the back door is sort of like, right. The whole journal, the whole journal issue is educational undergrowth. And like, we are those weeds, right. Like we are coming in through the, and this is more America stuff. Well, let me let you take it over because I know you got something to say. No, I was just super excited. I love, I remember um, David had that line about like, you know, abolition reduces, you know, recidivism. And I was just, I like, th- those are those like little moments where you're like, duh. <laughs> anyway, um, I, you know, I, I really appreciate the both and framing. And I think that when we wrote this, maybe I was less of the sort of in the both and framing, but now I'm in that both and that we got to do, you know, we have always done more than one thing at once. And we, you know, we need to continue to do more than one thing at once, which is, you know, make, uh, you know, challenge institutions and structures and demand, you know, their um, dissolution and or, you know, uh, new formations. And at the same time, we need to take the, the those re- those resources that are attached to those institutions and redistribute them. Right. Like, you know, which is David's nice way of saying, you know, getting people in the back door. Like we got to do both. We got to do both. And I do think that there's a, you know, a vast, you know, David, I think a couple of questions back was talking about, like, I work at a public working class, relatively open access university. You know, that's always been the institution of necessity and choice for systems impacted people in the Chicagoland area. You know, we got no money. We got no endowment. Right. Like, you know, uh, so the, the working conditions of that kind of a university, you know, or a college is very different than a university, you know, of Chicago or a Stanford or, or even, a, you know, a, a Berkeley. So I, and I think we'd need some nuance sort of in these conversations. Like I'm all for, you know, you know, uh, um, nationalizing private universities and redistributing their endowments. Right. Um, um, but I, and, and I was also for free, free post-secondary education at state four-year universities and colleges. Like that's a no brainer like that, you know? Um, so I, I, I feel like, um, you know, I, you know, I, I'm kind of at this, like, you know, Debbie was talking about deep contradictions and, and I think that there's nothing wrong with sort of being in, you know, doing the bull fan, like, um, kind of, you know, having a sharp analysis, deep critique and still doing the work to try to get people in those places and redistribute the resources. I feel like that's actually a really productive way to work. And I think in my, in my mind, that's always been sort of an abolitionist practice, right? That you engage 
face the contradictions, you know, anyway, you have the vision about what you want to do and where you want to go, but you also are doing the work, you know, every day to make sure that people are, are flourishing and kept alive and, you know, doing that work. So I feel like that's our kind of our, 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 our work at the site of the university with that sort of qualifier that there is no real university. There's like all different kinds of entities, you know, and that we need to be paying particular attention to what those entities look like and are right. Um, and not falling for, you know, like UC Berkeley says it's public, but really is a public, right? Like Laney college seems way more public than, you know, than UC Berkeley. Right? So, um, like, so being able to follow the money, being able to, um, you know, any, anyway, so I can keep on going. So, I, but I, th- I think just the, the, I'm just coming back to the both and, you know, um, tension there that we got to do both of those things in this moment at the side of the university um, and also not fall for the, you know, like I think the demand to remove police from, from campuses is a really important demand right now, but also make sure that that is a through line connected to the man- demands to defund police in our neighborhoods and reinvest those, you know, in our community, those resources for affirming, you know, mental health services and other resources in our neighborhoods and communities that we're connecting that what we're doing on campuses to the work that's also unfolding in our communities and neighborhoods. Absolutely. Yeah. You know what? And to, to riff off that, this brings up something that Nick Mitchell brings up a lot, which is like, um, while we want to focus on like removing student debt, we don't want to treat the, you know, this is Nick Mitchell, Abigail Boggs and the whole abolition university collective, right. Is sort of thinking about, we don't want to treat the student as the innocent container of unlimited possibility at the expense of being like, see you single mom of color, you got the bad debt, right? You got Oh, I have a whole riff on, on bad debt from Moten, which is something different, but I'm, I'm going to save that for now. But anyway, <laughs> I think just the point is that, right. I, I love this because like, this is the violence of value, right? Like we don't want to like rally around like, you know, you know, let's get rid of university cops because university students are right. This kind of particular innocent subject. that's like relatively innocent and should be rallied around and people in the ghetto and in the hood, like let's keep police on them. Right. Where, where they, where they've been at already. And it's sort of like, no, right. Like it's, it's all policing, right. It's all. And so, yeah, this is a huge point that I think Erica brings up. And, and another thing it brings up for me is like, um, I'm reminded of Ruth Wilson Gilmore's earlier work around like abolition organizing where they're, they're against the building of a prison and they're organizing with like Republican farmers to get them to understand like the water table is going to be bad for them. And they get uh, an ecological group that's worried about a kangaroo rat that's going to be extinct. Right. And so like sometimes abolition organizing can be unlikely arrangements to get one thing done. Right. It, don't, it doesn't mean we love Republican farmers. Right. But it means like and this is something Rachel Herzing and, and Isaac Ontiveros really came in and taught us when they did political education at USI is like rally around something that is an abolitionist reform, right? It reduces the life scale and scope of the thing that you oppose and find maybe some unlikely alliances to get that done. Right. Because it's not, there's no pure politic to this, right? It's like find the thing that is the win, right? We win abolitionists win. Right. And there's a politics of love and care and, and, and just hope is a discipline as Cabo would say. Right. And so it's not a bunch of people sitting around like uh, angry all the time. Right. It's like um, it should be rooted in joy. Right. 
Can I just pick up with an example of what's happening here in Illinois? You know, we have, uh, I, I work, you know, inside the prison system sometimes, and, um, you know, we have a new democratic regime in, in power that's supposedly friendly towards education programs in prison. And, you know, people inside who are, you know, lucky enough to get access to some of the very few slots of being like a student inside, um, you know, are being protected from movement, are being allowed all kinds of resources. There's a discussion of building like dorms inside prisons. You know, people want to raise money for dorms inside prisons for students. And, you know, um, it's really, uh, you know, it's that sort of, as David was framing, it's this, this sort of, you know, and people inside, some people inside want this because it's, you know, it's access to some possibility, access to, you know, more resources. So this, the identity of the student, right, inside the prison industrial complex is a, is a lucrative and valuable commodity, right? Um, and I think, but of course, you know, it, it, it shuts off, you know, all the people who don't, you know, ironically, the wait time to get to finish your GED in the Illinois Department of Corrections, especially if people serving long sentences can be up to seven or eight years. So who gets into these, you know, student slots and college programs is like a very small number of people who already have GEDs or, you know, high school diplomas, you know, and, and so it's just, you know, how you know, it's sort of another example. And it's, this is being in part driven by the higher education community in the state of Illinois that's like pushing for this. So it's a, a sort of a perfect example of what David is talking about, about how, you know, you know, universities and colleges are trying to push for some of these changes in the Department of Corrections that are actually going to might benefit a very small number of people. But the long term consequences are going to be pretty devastating for many other people and also reinforce this problematic identity of student, you know, as somehow better than or more innocent or more meritous of resources when people have been teaching and learning without higher education in prisons for decades. Right. <laughs> and, you know, so I think that that figure, that category of the student is a pretty da- is kind of a dangerous one to, to wield around. It has, you know, it has associations with like, you know, youth and whiteness and privilege. Right. So we want to be careful about how we invoke that. Um, and how we use that to gain access to resources because it's always going to leave other people out. And I think that we want to really, you know, be pushing for, you know, teaching and learning happen in all kinds of places, happen in labor unions, happen in, you know, mosque basements, happen in organizing, right? And that teaching and learning is very powerful and radical and revolutionary. Um, I'm not minimizing, you know, credentials matter sometimes, but I think it's that both and, like, we want to be careful, we want that we're not valorizing one kind of teaching and learning is so deeply embedded in racial capitalism, like the university and meritocracy, all these things that we've been talking about and the violence of value, which is just, you know, harmful. You know, if we, if we just keep paying attention to that, we miss all this amazing other teaching and learning that is radical and revolutionary. You know, all these people that David is citing, you know, Miriam Kaba, Rachel Herzing, you know, Isaac are all doing this popular education work, movement work, teaching and learning movement work that's not connected formally to a university and is so revolutionary. So we want to, we want to lean into that and try to use, you know, but we also don't want to be naive. The university has so, it still has so many resources. It has physical space. It has paper and the photocopiers. I can, you know, because of my job title, I can write letters for people's parole. Right. You know, I mean, all these things matter. 
And we, we got to use them in this moment, you know, we use them carefully and strategically, you know, and be accountable for how we use them, but also don't believe that they're real, right? Like don't believe that the value and the markers of value produced by these institutions are, you know, authentic. I can relate to that because I was one of the people that was lucky enough to get selected to participate in higher education while I was incarcerated. And so, you know, I do, I totally understand that. And I, and I feel like, especially us at underground scholars and then Berkeley being like the first underground scholars, it's like, we get highlighted a lot. We get tokenized a lot and it's like, Oh, how did you do it? It's like, I just got selected. I was one of the 60 people that got selected out of 4,000 women to participate. That's how it happened. And so that's how I got my AA in there. But there was thousands of people that couldn't, you know, and I just kind of went along with that path. And I was just lucky. Um, I mean, I put in the work for sure, but also it wasn't like, you know, I'm just like more special than everybody else. There's just I, I was lucky enough to get selected in my cohort and to be given the opportunity to access higher education while I was in there, you know, that's really important to highlight. And I think it's important for us to keep that at the forefront when we're doing this work. I mean, even here, you know, underground scholars, like I I feel like we're doing abolition work, you know, because it did start off with, with students who saw a need and, you know, it wasn't like the university or, you know, campus or anybody was like, let's create this program for underground scholars to get more students in. Now the students were like, no, we need to get our people in here. Let's do this transfer cohort. Let's start responding to letters and and let's start supporting people. And that was before we had like student positions and, and work study positions. And, and, and the students now here, I think a lot of people tend to think like, you know, they're, you know, they're doing all this work. It's like the students are doing so much of this work. They're doing way more way. They're doing going above and beyond even their capacity sometimes to make sure that we are getting people in or their transcripts analyzed or just a letter or, you know, providing them whatever resources that we have. And that's what I love about us so much is we're just always about like opening that door and kind of like paying it forward. Like I know for me, it was like Danny Murillo, who was the founder, who was like, never let me go. I, I came to the university and I was like, I'm scared. Like, I don't, I don't belong here. You know, having everything to transfer and apply. And, you know, he just never let him, never let me go. He was like, come back. We're having this event we're having that and that's just like what we do for our people so that's just kind of you know one thing you know just talking about us and how i love us and then the work we do can i just add that that should be an entire podcast you know the exact you know your own trajectory that you offer but also this that description of the work and you know danny's i think about sort of disability studies politics like nothing about us without us and you know also this framework that no one is disposable right like what if we radically start from that right like that there aren't like better people who are you know more smarter who deserve this access to these pipelines and these resources like what if we had the radical like you know no one is disposable this should be available for everyone everywhere right um anytime right so i and i think that that i just you know your you know the, the narrative you offered you know you shared from your own life and also the the sort of the work of you know danny and the underground scholars i mean the institution can like dress up and tokenize projects like this any way it wants but there's also you know like we still have a core of how we understand the work and how we relate to one another you know danny uh, 
um, you know, I'm just thinking and imagining him, but like, you know, in our article, we talk about it actually as like working in the cracks, like, you know, like working in like the fissures and the tiny ways that, you know, like we make those relationships and they can't, they can't take those relationships away, away from us. Like they might put us on their fucking brochures and try to use them to get donors, but right. they, can't take, they can't take away the relationships that we have with one another and with communities and with struggle and with work. And I think that that's real, um, you know, in the now. Right. So I just want to underscore that. David, anything else? I mean, I guess one one last thing and you all really highlighted it throughout the podcast. But how do you incorporate abolition in your day to day life? Yeah, abolitionist. I mean, I like to think, I mean, I certainly wasn't always an abolitionist, you know, when my own dad was arrested, you know, when I was a teenager, it certainly, you know, made me, made me at that time, even though I knew that the police weren't producing any form of safety, it made my world seem a little bit less chaotic, right, as a teenager, for sure. I like to think today I'm always trying to practice abolition, you know, and I, I don't know that I'm always 100 percent successful, you know, in my interpersonal lives, in my political work. I, I just want to like lean into something that David offered. I feel like abolitionist work is is in collective, is in is in relation, is in networks and organizations and kinship and people and you know these forms of um, assemblage or relationality, right? So trying to whether it's through some of the organizing and campaigns or projects or in my own you know domestic world, right? Um, on my block, right? How we deal with like conflict on my block. So I feel like I'm always trying to practice that, which requires me to always be studying, always be learning. Cause I feel like I grew up, you know, as a, you know, in rural British Columbia, Canada, you know, under white settler colonial, you know, racial capitalism, heteropatriarchy. So I think it's always like working to sort of unlearn some of those ways of dealing with harm when it emerges um, and, and trying to practice new, new other ways of dealing with harm when it happens on my block, um, you know, when, it happens in my domestic world, you know, um, because it's not, it's not, it's, you know, abolition isn't about thinking that harm is never going to happen. It's about how do we respond when it does happen? How do we act preventatively to try to reduce it from happening, right? Like how do we move the, you know, um, you know, $33 million that we're spending a year, you know, in, in Chicago public schools on policing, how do we move that from policing to what we actually need, which is mental health services and support for young people. Right. Um, so, so I, I mean, I like to think I'm trying to practice abolition every day and I'm sometimes successful. Um, and I think I can only do it, you know, in relation to other people, in relation to um, sort of ongoing, you know, uh, relationships um, of, of, of study and learning and practice and relationality and, and, and care or love in different kinds of ways. I appreciate that. I, I just really appreciate Erica and all the all the things that I've learned from you and with you. And I likewise, this, this convo, um, this is the work, right? These, yeah. these are the moments. This is the work, right? I'm like privileged to, to pick David's brain every time I see <laughs> conversations. I learned much from David, but it's been really uh, a pleasure sharing this space with you, Erica, and learning from you. For those that are interested in reading more about the work of Dr. Miners and David Maldonado, please check out the episode description and follow the links provided. Yeah. Yeah. Get up. 
Dedication to my peoples on the front lines. Standing for justice with the fist up like a sunrise. Those the folks that chose the road to toe the tough line. Hold it steady, have already never run at crunch time. Rain, hail, sleet, snow. Marching in the freezing cold. Meeting on the weekends, planning how to get to freedom road. Dreaming and scheming on how we gonna defeat the foe. You the lighthouse in a storm, we can see the globe.